Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome back to yet another episode of Parallax. Um, I have the honor and the privilege of having with me a very special guest today on the show. Um, he is someone who I consider a friend, um, also a mentor, uh, someone who I look up to, you know, personally and professionally as to how he has led his life in both personal and professional spheres. He, um, also has been, um, you know, sort of a guiding light for me when he has reached out to me personally, you know, and recommending, um, just, um, different aspects, um, of, um, you know, both practice of medicine and cardiology, as well as practice of life. Uh, he has uh, reached out to me, um, on several occasions, you know, looking out for me. So, um, I, I really look up to him for, uh, for many things, you know, not only in cardiovascular medicine, but also in life. Um, and, um, you know, my, my guest is, um, Joao and uh, Joao, I, I hope I'm, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yeah. Um, um, Dr. Cavalcante, um, is, uh, the director of cardiac magnetic resonance imaging at my alma mater, the Minneapolis heart Institute an institution, which is very close to my heart. Um, he's also the director of structural computer tomography laboratories, um, at the Minneapolis heart Institute and, um, you know, the director of the imaging core laboratory. Um, so, you know, as we all can see, he's very involved and very occupied and very busy and, you know, has done some incredible work, uh, meaningful work, you know, both clinically as well as in, in clinical research in the, in the imaging space. So, Joao, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, Ankur, for such a kind introduction. And it is a true privilege to be here today with you and spend some time discussing about a podcast that about myself and about our pathway as friendships as well. And, um, you know, about the podcast that I have been a friend of it. Um, I think you, you bring several aspects about, you know, we as uh, human uh, me beings and uh, you know as care providers uh, we have a personal history and i look forward to this discussion tonight uh thank you yes so uh, you know we would like to get started um by asking you um about your journey into who you are today um you know tell us a a bit more about uh, you know your childhood uh growing up um what were some of uh, the circumstances that led you to pursue a career in medicine and then in cardiology, who are your, who were your role models growing up and 
who are your role models in uh, the current uh, era of uh, you know medicine and cardiology so um, you know, looking forward to hearing more about your personal story. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, you know, I think it's a story of many stories. So um, I truly believe that every um, generation uh, tries to do better um, than the predecessor. So, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised uh, in Brazil in a city called Fortaleza, uh, which is the capital of the state, Ceará. Uh, Fortaleza is on the northeast coast of Brazil. And it's about the three and a half million population. And uh, my uh, parents, uh, my father um, it was a, is a physician, um, retired physician. Now he's a psychiatrist. And my mom was a social worker with a special uh, interest in um, understanding aging. And so both of them were uh, academically very uh, motivated and um, had decided to in the early and the mid late seventies, and specifically nineteen seventy eight, um, just six months after I had been born, uh, to go to France, and so my father got a scholarship to um, study um, psychiatry and do his PhD in psychiatry in the city of Lyon in France, and I was um, you know then taken and uh, grew up there um, until I was two and a half years old. He completed his PhD and then moved on to uh, Brussels in Belgium uh, to study uh, anthropology. And you could think that, you know, what is a, a psychiatry doing with anthropology for a physician? But it has a lot of actually uh, common uh, background because uh, it's as important as it is to make the biological diagnosis is to understand the, the social um, cultural background of the patient and the environment in which he or she is. Um, so case in point, for example, a depressed patient in um, Brazil or in the United States will behave differently than uh, some other cultural uh, backgrounds and beliefs, for example, in uh, Asia, Japan, or India, or in other places. Um, there's a social background support that is important to understand, and that's part of the healing process as well. And so he was quite intrigued by that. And that was part of also uh, going beyond just the biological part that he had studied by doing that. And so we lived in uh, Brussels for about three years. And um, after that, um, we uh, decided, they decided to return and back to Brazil. And uh, we were speaking Portuguese in, at home, but you know my main language was actually French. And then I had to learn Portuguese after I got back. And it's funny that you know I remember some conversation with some of my cousins, you know, saying, what language is it talking? Because we cannot understand. And um, it was, you know, that way that we kind of got introduced back to the Brazilian culture and grew up there and always um, had my father as, um, you know, one of the role models, um, you know, used to take sometimes phone calls and treat patients and uh, did a lot of psychotherapy too. Um, and medicine for me was something that I enjoyed. Um, but I also enjoy the you know, human aspect of the, the patient and the disease. And um, always, um, as growing up in Brazil, like music, you know, and I still uh, play music. And music for me was also a means to get introduced to the American culture. And lots of the 90s rock bands and, um, you know, played um, in some bands in Brazil. And I wanted to come to the United States and do an exchange student program. 
but it was hard for him to convince to be convinced that you know I could come to the United States. Um, there was some resistance, and I had to pretty much lobby. Uh, my mom was more convinced, but he wasn't. Uh, and finally, he allowed me to come, and I came um, in uh, 1994 to a small town in uh, Wisconsin, a city called Bruce, Wisconsin. And uh, it was a small town, little less than a thousand people. There was nobody there other than me as <laughs> from for a medical graduate in the middle of January. So the contrast about the weather, leaving the Northeast coast, 80 degrees all year long to minus 20. But I was, you know, that was my purpose. That was, you know, the way to get introduced and immersed into the American culture. And after six months, I came back to Brazil and, um, you know, a little bit of a longer hair. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, really passionate about music and my experience of living here for six months, graduated from high school. And um, when I went back to Brazil, I, you know, there is this big exam that you need to get into, which is um, then um, a very competitive to get into the public universities there. And I wanted to, instead of pursuing medicine, I wanted to do psychology, actually. And he was quite uh, perplexed, you know, with that and said, how is that possible that you know, I knew that the, the United States was going to screw him up, you know, <laughs> in the back of his mind. That was something that he kind of <laughs> probably was correct, you know. But um, he said, you know, um, if you like psychology so much, why don't you go do medicine again? You know, because there you can see psychology, you can see psychiatry, and you can see so many things. And I think that was probably one of the single best advices Um that he has given to me. I guess I could have been a successful and passionate psychologist, but probably a little bit more limited into what I could have done. So I uh, studied hard and then finally got into university and um, finishing um, the six years there in Brazil, I had the chance to do an exchange student program um, to um, in Detroit, Michigan, um, in urology. And I knew that I did not want to do you know, surgery, but that was the opportunity to do uh, some rotations there. And then that's when I got first um, introduced to the American medical system. And, um, you know, you used to have textbooks in which I could read about and have, you know, uh, practice, you know, get this test, get this lab, get this exam. But I was never able to do that with the resources that we had that were so limited back in Brazil. And uh, finally, I decided to come um, and apply for the, you know, USMLEs and, and take the journey here and was uh, lucky to uh, match at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and I started my journey into internal medicine. And then, you know, after that, uh, chief residency and then cardiology at Henry Ford. And I could have, you know, finished that and then start practicing, but I still had this very deep and still, you know, pursue that with me, passion about cardiac imaging, which was just at the beginning at that time. You know, there was obviously some cardiac MRI, but CT was kind of at the beginning of it. And um, at that time, there was no training in imaging at the Henry Ford, and but there was one at Cleveland Clinic, um, which is interesting that that's where you are practicing now. So, yeah. uh, you know, I went uh, back to Cleveland, um, you know, went to Cleveland. And that's where, um, you know, my daughter was born. The boys were born um, in Michigan during the, you know, the years there. I met my wife and um, the, the girl was born in Cleveland, Hillcrest Hospital. And, um, and then we finished the two years of advanced cardiac imaging, which actually opened for me a palette of so many opportunities. 
that was the beginning of uh, structural um, interventions. TAVR was, um, you know, already being done, uh, left atrial appendage closure and some mitral clips. And it was uh, Dr. Samir Karpati and uh, Murat Tuju, both of them scrubbed in the cath lab and us providing TE guidance at that time. And a lot of this structural TAVR CT was, you know, at the beginning of the understanding and cardiac MRI was um, full force. And after that, then my first job into um, an academic job at the University of Pittsburgh, where I stayed for six years and uh, became um, associate professor. And then this opportunity that came out of the blue here uh, to Minneapolis Heart Institute, uh, which is current my home and uh, a phenomenal group that I cannot say um, enough good things about. Yes. So, you know, phenomenal journey, really. Um, you know, a lot of similarities, if, if I were to, um, you know, recite my story, um, you know, growing up in a similar culture, um, you know, my father is a cardiologist and, um, you know, I think as far as I can remember, um, I always wanted to be a physician and, um, you know, similar to yours had to really persuade my father to allow me to come to the United States to pursue, to, to pursue further training and advanced training in, in cardiovascular medicine. And uh, for the longest time, my plan was to go back um, until Cleveland happened. And, you know, it's the city that uh, has given me both my boys. Actually, it's funny you mentioned Hillcrest Hospital. That's where our, our second one was born now, you know, about eight weeks ago. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's just a um, lot of uh, similarities. But, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Um, the group at Minneapolis Art Institute is is just a phenomenal group of cardiologist, there's a lot of camaraderie. And I, I just, I think the, uh, the, the culture is very healthy, is very collegial. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I certainly, um, you know, relish my, um, memories of, uh, time that I've spent with that group. Um, and, you know, hold each one of them very fondly in my heart. Um, That's so nice to hear. Yeah, I, uh, I am really blessed um, and thankful for every day, every moment uh, of being part of this, um, the support and the vision and the drive that uh, lots of our members here have. It's a second to none. And I think uh, that is contagious, you know, and uh, can only do better. Um, and I am really uh, honored to be part of this. And as you know, some things happen sometimes uh, completely unexpected, and that was the the circumstance here. And I have to be grateful for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think um, you know. Also, I'd like to believe that you know, good unexpected, th uh, good unexpected things happen to good people, and you know, you certainly are one of them. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't a surprise to me when you brought that up. When I think I saw you now about a, I think it was about a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. At the uh, at, at the CVI meeting in Denver, uh, mm -hmm. I think that's when you you brought it up, and you know I I couldn't say um, you know better things about uh, the Minneapolis Art Institute than you know what you've just said. So, well, congratulations, and uh, you know I you know all of us hope uh, and that you continue to enjoy and and grow and and teach us. Um, so coming to coming to teaching. Uh, well, you know, first up, thank you for contributing a very meaningful article to issue 13.2 of U.S. Cardiology Review. Um, I think it's um, 
it's a great um, review article. It's also uh, progressive and, uh, you know, it opens up a new avenue for uh, investigation, clinical investigation into the staging of aortic stenosis. So um, I would, I will let you talk more about it. Um, you know, just d- discussing the concept and discussing the work that uh, you've done and um, Phil Jeanereau has done. And, you know, he actually is also um, someone who listens to the podcast. So, you know, um, Philippe, uh, Philippe, if you're listening, you know, just uh, give us a shout out on Twitter and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be sure for sure to retweet that tweet. Uh, but Joao, go ahead. No, thank you, uh, Ankur, and, and definitely have to give kudos to Philippe, you know, for bringing up um, this, uh, introducing this first concept, which, you know, we're good friends as well, and I recall, you know, him mentioning that he got a lot of pushback as well. Uh, but, you know, I think what Philippe had tried to do in his first, uh, you know, publication that came out a couple years ago um, at um, European Heart Journal was to understand um, that aortic stenosis goes beyond just a valvular problem. You know, the, there are several repercussions that occur as a consequence of the continuous and progressive uh, pressure overload that the left ventricle has to take. Um, and as such, it provides some sort of a easy, you know, bad sign clinical framework that one could potentially use in terms of understanding uh, the risk stratification for these patients. Um, he proposed the staging system, um, which obviously is a cross-sectional look. Um, it's not meaning that a patient progresses on a linear fashion from stage one to two to three to four. But nonetheless, it is a way to understand that when they present with not only the severe aortic stenosis, but damage that has gone beyond the left ventricle now, for example, into the tricuspid valve or into the pulmonary hypertension, to the right ventricle, this is far advanced. And as such, these patients should be um, not only be intervened perhaps even early on, but also other resources need to be in place in order to potentially try to modify uh, and continue our awareness and vigilance that by tackling just the aortic valve might not be sufficient. And so what Philippe had done uh, before was looking at the partner data, uh, both at patients that had received surgical and transcatheter aortic valve replacement, and classify simply into stage zero, which would be no damage stage one, patients that would have left ventricular changes with either increased LV mass uh, or diastolic dysfunction or ejection fraction below 50. Then stage two, when the disease goes from the left ventricle into the left atrium, the mitral valve, increased left atrium volumes, mitral regurgitation, atrial fibrillation. Stage three, that would be now moving into the right side for pulmonary hypertension, tricuspid regurgitation. And stage four would be like the very metastatic, if you will, or terminal um, stage four, in which we would have moderate to severe RV dysfunction. And he showed a very nice uh, stepwise uh, increase in the risk of uh, both uh, all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality uh, for patients that had received either surgical or transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, but those obviously were uh, patients that were enrolled in clinical trials, and sometimes uh, the criticism is that you know those patients would be selected 
um, they would be obviously not representative potentially of the real world. And uh, we decided to look into our Tavr database that was back at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, now looking at simply at patients that had received transcatheter aortic valve replacement and almost 700 patients that uh, Dr. Miho Fukui uh, led this investigation. And using the same sort of a classification system, uh, we uh, wanted to uh, expand beyond what Philippe had uh, shown before by looking at not only um, now only in TAVR patients, which now represent actually the majority of you know, TAVR has taken over surgical aortic valve replacement in this country, but also looking at the association of this staging system with both all-cause as well as cardiac-related readmissions because it has important metric of morbidity. So it might fix the valve, they might not die, but if they keep coming back to the hospital, that might be reflective of also uh, healthcare cost utilization and morbidity. And um, we saw actually, um, similar to uh, Philippe, um, you know, obviously in the TAVR world, there were no patients that had stage zero, but we saw this also graded uh, increase uh, from stage uh, one to stage four uh, for both um, all-cause uh, mortality and also all-cause hospitalization. But interestingly, um, in terms of the hospitalizations, particularly patients that have pulmonary hypertension and significant tricuspid regurgitation, they had a much greater uh, rehospitalization for cardiac-related events, um, which brings the question of, you know, can we intervene and should we be intervening in these patients earlier? Um, and could there be other strategies beyond TAVR that could be used um, to modify that risk? Yes. Um, so thank you for... Um, just going over um, the work that both Philippe and you've done. Um, you know, just for uh, the audience and for the listenership, um, I would uh, guide them to this article that you've published with, uh, with Miho. Um, and what we are referring to is figure one um, in the manuscript, which um, is, I think, a figure which I think all of us should have handy. Because I, I do think, I think after Philippe published that paper and, you know, after your work was published, which also looked at readmission uh, based on the staging system, I've started using the staging system in my clinic notes when I'm seeing patients in valve clinic for oh, aortic stenosis. Yeah. And, you know, like, like, um, like in, the, in the work that you've done, I think a vast majority of patients... Um, that we're seeing are stage one, you know, meaning they, they do have some um, degree of ventricular hypertrophy. Uh -huh. but, I, but I think for the audience, I think um, a couple more objective parameters for uh, classifying someone in stage one would be evidence for left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. So, um, you know, Joao's, in, in Joao's paper, that's E to E prime of more than 14 and, and or left ventricular systolic dysfunction, which is in ejection fraction of less than 50%. And then, you know, like Joao said, you know, for stage two, it's um, the left atrial volume index more than 34 cc's per meter square or atrial fibrillation or moderate to severe mitral regurgitation for stage three. Um, again, uh, like he explained, it's um, a pulmonary hypertension. So that'll be more than 60 millimeters of mercury systolic pulmonary artery pressure or moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation. And then stage four is when you have 
moderate to severe right ventricular systolic uh, dysfunction. So, Joao, uh, I'm going to ask you a futuristic question. It's something that uh, you, know, you and I have discussed uh, when we've met in conferences. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's something that you actually have have mentioned in this paper as well in the section on future directions, um, you know, which is quantifying the degree of myocardial fibrosis, particularly in a subset of patients which tends not to do that well. And, you know, you and I both know what, what I'm talking about, and that's the patient population with uh, low gradient severe aortic stenosis. Now, whether that's paradoxical low flow, low gradient, or whether that's true low flow, low gradient is something we can talk more about. Um, but I just wanted to, just because I have the luxury of having you here and, you know, who better than you to, to tell us about fibrosis and magnetic resonance imaging, uh, you know, tell us more about that. Um, it's, it's an evolving area. So I'd like to, um, uh, learn more about that. Yeah, no, I, I, you're very kind and I have to definitely acknowledge the work by many others. I mean, I'm just one of the uh, other champions here from United States, but this work has been obviously done by um, also another great colleague and um, great partner in many papers, uh, who is Mark Dweck from Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. And uh, we recently had published a paper in uh, Jack a couple of weeks ago, looking at the different metric of fibrosis. But I wanted to call uh, the attention uh, to the audience here about, you know, a couple important papers that have come out uh, the last couple of years. Um, one is a publication that has been uh, now uh, in circulation in 2018 uh, by um, a multicentric um, study that has looked into uh, the use of cardiac magnetic resonance imaging uh, for the evaluation of late catalytic enhancement. Um, in this publication, um, it was using a consortium of several centers, um, 11 centers, and they looked into can cardiac MRI done as means of um, prior to intervention, be that surgical AVR or transcatheotic valve replacement, uh, be able to um, determine who are the patients that could be a potential more uh, greater vulnerability uh, by the presence of myocardial fibrosis. So late gallium enhancement imaging has been well established uh, in the measurement of SCAR. Uh, we use that for coronary artery disease. And the interesting thing about this paper is that you know, the presence of myocardial fibrosis uh, was very common. Um, about 51% of these patients um, had infarct, had the SCAR. And the most common uh, form of SCAR was actually non-infarct SCAR, so 33% versus 18%. And the presence of SCAR doubled the all-cause mortality, and it tripled the cardiovascular mortality. And that was regardless of the etiology, regardless whether you had CAD-related SCAR or non-CAD-related SCAR, um, the presence of that. And it's not only you had SCAR you did not have, but the quantification, the percent increase, also was meaningful. And that was the first one um, to show um, publication by Musa um, as the first author in Greenwood. John Greenwood is the last author in circulation, 2018, was the first one who um, brought it up to us, you know, on a bigger um, cohort of almost 700 patients, the importance of myocardial fibrosis by cardiac MRI. And um, there is an ongoing uh, trial uh, led by uh, my colleague, um, who I mentioned before, Mark Dweck, um, that is called Evolved, 
which is trying to uh, push the envelope and trying to use this marker of fibrosis. Because by the time fibrosis manifests, it might be already too late. Can we intervene or could we be potentially triggering the intervention even prior to its development? Or even in the patients that are asymptomatic, you know, can we intervene in the presence of fibrosis before symptoms take place? So the EVOLVE trial is looking at this uh, by taking asymptomatic patients, scanning them with cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, and should there be presence of fibrosis, they will be randomized to the continued uh, guideline-based watchful waiting versus early intervention. Um, and these patients will be followed um, by several years. And a similar study, although without using cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, has been led by Philippe Genero here in the United States uh, called Early Taver, which is more of a pragmatic trial, regardless of the presence of fibrosis, we should potentially intervene in these patients. And um, we'll be very excited to hear and see what the results of these two trials will be. I believe they're complementary, and I believe we'll be learning a great deal about that. But, you know, this is just one part of the fibrosis on curve because it's, uh, you know, for you to see what it's white, which is what, how we see scar on magnetic resonance imaging, we need to see what it is black. But when everything is gray, you do not have a good capability of discerning that. And this grayish uh, would be what we call this um, extracellular volume fraction or ECV, which is just a measurement of how much is the interstitium expanded. So ECV will be high in the presence of fibrosis, fibrosis by um, you know, diffuse fibrosis from the hypertrophic process, but it could also be high in the presence of other mimickers of hypertrophy, such as cardiac amyloidosis. Um, and cardiac amyloidosis is another um, culprit here that we have been um, screening and been identifying actually much more commonly. There are at least uh, four studies um, that I know um, that have looked into different populations um, that have found a very similar uh, prevalence of um, the, this overlap of disease of cardiac amyloidosis and uh, aortic stenosis uh, in one in six patients. So that's not rare at all. And um, we are very interested in this. And uh, in fact, you know, we have set it up a, um, a recent multicentric registry to try to um, understand better what uh, to do with these patients. This obviously has a more retrospective um, aspect of it and uh, would encourage uh, you and the audience as well uh, to uh, you know, reach out to me and participate. I think this will be a great opportunity for us to let better understand when and how to intervene in these patients. Um, but you know, fibrosis in these patients sometimes can become quite overwhelming. Uh, ventricles become smaller, and they sometimes present with this low flow, low gradient paradoxical low flow, low gradient. Um, yes, um, yes. This is a this is a vaccine patient population, and you know, I, you know, from from what I've seen, um, you know, these patients tend not to do well. Uh, you know, irrespective of whether you offer them a valve replacement procedure or not. Um, you know, because like you said, I think there is an interplay of uh, an, uh, another disease process, which, um, you know, carries a poor prognosis. Um, so, you know, in terms of, in terms of diagnostic and let's, well, let's talk about the diagnostic algorithm first, like what triggers a workup for amyloidosis? Um, so for example, if you, if you've now identified a patient who has 
uh, low gradient, severe AS, um, based on a transthoracic echocardiogram. Now you are evaluating that patient in clinic. What what is the next diagnostic step for for you or for your team? Uh, for the valve team who's evaluating that patient? Like, do you systematically order MRIs in all these patients? No, I, I don't think that we are um, at this point of doing this mandatory, um, you know, massive uh, screening for all comers. I think our understanding so far on uh, these other prior registries has seen has been seen in patients that have obviously um, wall thickness that is increased and typically wall thickness above you know, 1.4, 1.5 centimeters in uh, thickness. One of the hallmarks of amyloidosis is a very poor longitudinal function. So even though the, you know, the ejection fracture might be a low norm or quasi-preserved, um, when you look in the apical four chamber, sometimes one can spot on the parasternal long axis. The heart contracts, but it's mostly on the radial direction. It's mostly the transverse, the inward direction. It loses that longitudinal up and down, up and down. And so that is one of the features of amyloid. Um, and this poor longitudinal function will be expressed on the tissue Doppler, the S prime, if you will, uh, both medial and lateral annular, that will be reduced, typically below five, square, uh, five centimeters per second or so. So when you do that, then you potentially could put, do, depending on how adequate the image quality is, um, you know, global longitudinal strain or GLS, and if you capture the relative apical sparing, that would be great. But the absence of that does not mean that you don't have cardiac amyloidosis. So it's specific but not sensitive enough. And so we ought to continue our vigilance. And the best next step, if you have that expertise or that available at your center, I would think that um, cardiac MRI would be a great one. Um, and the reason being is that it can also... Um, play out into identifying the other uh, potential causes of hypertrophy. Could this be not amyloid, but could this be HCM? Um, by the way, HCM sometimes, HCM-like can be amyloid. So not a, all amyloid is all concentric hypertrophy. Sometimes you might have asymmetric hypertrophy, which looks like HCM and could be amyloid. Um, it could be other mimickers like, you know, in the more, in the younger patients, sometimes Fabry's disease, sometimes it can be primary AL which should be treated as a medical urgency. Um, and if you have a good MRI axis, uh, I would suggest doing that because it also can evaluate RV function and other things. Uh, the next test, you know, in the cardiac MRI only tells, is there amyloid or it is not amyloid here? It does not tell you whether you have primary AL or you have TTR, transthyretin amyloidosis. And for that, you need to go for other testing. Um, you got to exclude primary L with uh, biomarkers and blood testing and urine testing, immune electrophoresis and immunofixation and free light chain. But also you need to get a technician pyrophosphate scan here in the United States, uh, which uh, should be available in several um, hospitals. Is an old bone tracer that is relatively easy to be done. And for those patients, you know, just the careful analysis of that, not only with planar image, but also with spec imaging to make sure that we don't capture blood pool. So there are some nuances and a lot of the society guidelines, uh, ASNIC has come up with a nice uh, pamphlet that should be available for several practitioners on how to use nuclear imaging for the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis. It's much more common than what we think it is, that it used to be.
Yes, I mean, some of the contemporary um, registries that I've read, you know, just the, the data and the, the reporting, I mean, I think the prevalence is anywhere between 15 to 17%. And that's, you know, that's, that's not a low number. It's, um, that's a lot of patients. Right. And I think, you know, the stakes are high now because we have uh, a treatment for cardiac amyloidosis, although I would say the treatment is quite expensive as you probably um, have seen some recent discussions on um, not only social media, but also on other um, reports. Um, we believe that this will change as we're starting to recognize that this is not a rare disease, it's not an orphan disease as it was filed initially, but rather much more common. And as such, we need to continue to provide not only the diagnosis, but also access to treatment for these patients. And all of a sudden, TAVR for these patients might become a very relatively cheap offer, right? When we have a drug that costs $250,000 a year versus, you know, $25,000, $30,000 for a TAVR valve, um, they might still derive some benefit. Um, at this point in time, we don't have any data um, to support that we should be withholding treatment. Um, they might derive some benefit, although this benefit might be reduced. And it begs the question, can we make this diagnosis earlier um, for these patients? And I highly encourage you to uh, reach out to us. We have this uh, website now. It is uh, as-amyloidosis.net, which is really about this uh, multicentric registry consortium, Ankur. Uh, and I uh, would really welcome you and other colleagues to also look back at your hospital. Have we made this diagnosis before? And do we have these cases? And I think for this uh, multicentral collaborative registry is how we're going to try to at least get some glimpse of what to do with these patients. Yes, no, thank you for bringing me up to speed with uh, the the registry. Uh, I'm going to reach out to you, um, you know, in person yeah. and try and collaborate because you know, it is, uh, like you said, it's a very important question. And, um, you know, we, we definitely need an answer um, as to how to best manage uh, these patients um, well, Joao, thank you for a fascinating discussion. Um, I know we've been trying to set this up and, you know, this is late in the, in the day. So thank you for making the time, um, to get this recording done. Absolutely. Um, just, uh, closing remarks. Um, thank you. No, thank you. It was just, uh, just an absolute treat to have you, uh, just closing remarks for the audience and for our listenership. You know, I just wanted to thank everyone. Uh, and Joao, you and I have talked about this uh, off the record, but I just wanted to thank uh, everyone, including yourself and everyone else who's been tuning in to listen to us. Um, you know, we really value um, your suggestions, your feedback, your support. Um, and, uh, you know, you've um, allowed us to grow and evolve and you've given us so much love, um, you know, to me in person, as well as um you know, to, to our team on social media. And I just wanted to share that the, the podcast Parallax has won, uh, the 2020 scholarship in teaching award from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. It's the, uh, it's the medical school that is, uh, in, in the city of Cleveland. And, um, it, it has, uh, uh, the Cleveland clinic is one of its affiliates, uh, as one of the flagship affiliate teaching hospitals. So, um, I just wanted to, you know, use this opportunity and this platform to share uh, this great news with with all of with all of the, all of you and uh, and Joao, you you have I've shared this news with you yeah. in in person. 
That is phenomenal. And uh, again, congratulations and kudos for you to start so many other initiatives. Uh, I, I really love um, how dynamic you are and uh, you have touched so many lives, um, not only through this podcast, but through your other initiatives uh, that you have started. Um, and I uh, applaud you for uh, continuing this effort, going beyond just you know seeing the patients and treating patients, but caring for us physicians. And I, I think you know this is a testament of how teaching can occur um, beyond just you know the science itself, but you know us as human beings. Yes, you know I, I again you know I would not have been possible without uh, you know the guests that we've had on the show. You know incredible guests like yourself and. And, and many others, uh, you know, that have, you know, blessed us with their time. So, Joao, thank you again very much, you know, from the bottom of my heart. This has been a great discussion and, you know, um, we'll have a lot more uh, in person. So thank you. Thanks again. Likewise. Thank you so much again, Ankur. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.